Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. You've just been hearing about 24-7 and um, Adam's one of the leaders of 24-7 and he and Hannah uh, are two of the leaders as well of Emmaus. Uh, they're just phenomenal. Uh, they head up our evening service with a, a team, which is why you don't see them so much here, and uh, are just great Bible teachers and um, people who really live, li- li- live what they're about. The thing I particularly like about Adam, um, other than he's quite good at, at football, uh, is that um, you know a, a couple of years ago we were saying you know, we need to bring in some younger leaders. And we went around asking um, amongst lots of the sort of, um, you know, 18 to 25s, you know, who inputs into your life? Who challenges you? Who speaks to you? And it sort of became a stuck record. Everyone's like, we talked to Adam or Hannah. And we began to realize all roads lead to these guys. They're quietly just doing the stuff, making disciples. And um, so uh, we just we just love these guys dearly. So let's open our hearts, Adam Heather. Thanks, Pete. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to kick off. Lord Jesus, God, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, thank you that you promised that you were here with us today. We don't take that lightly, God. We turn our eyes and our affections towards you. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see you, our ears that we might hear you, and our hearts that we might be transformed by you. Because we know that when we see you, Jesus, we'll never be the same. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, you may have guessed from this very large large word behind me that we're going to be carrying on our ambition series today. And... um, So far, we've looked at some different things. We've looked at gospel ambition. We've looked at the missional ambition. What does it mean to go to Macedonia, to go to places and bring the good news of the kingdom? We've looked at a holy ambition. What does it like to look like a, to live a life of holiness and righteousness? But today, I want to kind of take maybe a step back from those examples. And I want to ask maybe the more holistic question of, you know, that makes sense if your dream is maybe to go to Macedonia or your dream is to share the gospel or, yeah, of course, holiness. But what about just the everyday dreams that you have, those things that you feel like God has given you that maybe don't fit naturally into gospel or mission or whatever? What does it mean to have a, a heart posture that approaches an ambitious life but does it for the goodness of God? When we think about ambition and whether or not we call it destiny or dreams or calling or whatever we call it, what does it mean to have a selfish ambition? What does it mean to have a sanctified ambition? Because you see, we live in a world that promotes fame and platform, popularity and youth. You know, what we say is the bigger you can be and the younger you can get there, the better you are at life. Right, we, we celebrate the footballer who's 16 years old, can't drink alcohol, but he can play in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Wow, he's really made it. Or we talk about, you know, the pop star who's young, gone multi-platinum already. You know, we celebrate these things. But when the world values success, the Bible values service. Just, I wonder if you would turn in your Bibles with me to... 
Philippians 2. We're going to be reading from verse 6. It says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a stunning passage of scripture. When the world values success, the model we see and what the Bible teaches is that the Bible values service. I love the fact that at this church, this church that we call home, Emmaus Road, we don't settle for a self-preservation gospel. We teach and we believe and we strive and we adventure in the knowledge that Jesus said the kingdom is coming and that it's expanding and even the very gates of Hades would not prevail against it. He said things like, greater will you do than I did because I go to be with the Father. We might not see that yet, but we believe it and we pursue it. Because a church with small thinking does not serve the world. And by church, I mean simply you and me. This family together. This priesthood of all believers, engraved and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so for a church to have a big impact, we need a community of believers with ambition, with big dreams. If we don't believe that Guildford or Woking or Macedonia are going to look different because of these people and this church, then we're not doing it right. right? That's what we believe. We believe that we're going to break poverty, that we're going to see loneliness broken, that there's going to be healing, that God's kingdom is going to come in all of its different forms into all different spheres However, as we grapple with these ambitions as a church and as individuals, we have to make sure that these dreams don't get corrupted by the world that we live in that values fame and popularity. I was, um, I was watching Bear Grylls' The Island. Does anybody else watch that, the series that's just gone? Yeah, a couple of people. I was in the evening service and not a single person put their hand up. It's obviously not quite as good as I thought it was, but... Um, and so watching, um, I was watching the island with, with Hannah, and um, there's this really interesting thing in that this year they decided to do old versus young on two different parts of the island to see who would win, the 18 to 30s or the 30 plus. And then they put them in different places, and you know, if you've seen it, you'll see. Basically, the idea of the island is that they take people from you know, everyday places in the Western world, and they drop them on an island with a few knives, a little bit of fishing rod, and um, something to boil water in, and they just see whether or not they can survive for six weeks. And so I was watching that, and basically what they have to do is they have to find a water source, and then they get given this sort of big metal water container, and then they have to boil the water. Right, And then that takes out all the impurities and everything that would cause them harm. And so the youngest guy there, and he was youngest by three years, he was only 18, he was just out of school, he got put in charge of boiling the water. 
Okay? All that meant was that he stuck it on top of the fire and he stayed with it until it started boiling. Like, pretty simple, right? Well, he decides that he is better than that, and he wants to prove that he's not young, and he wants to prove that he can hunt, and he's a little bit distracted by one of the girls in a bikini, and he leaves the fire, okay? And it doesn't boil. And everyone drinks it, and you can guess what happens. It's sort of firing from both ends, you know, full food poisoning, you know. And it's funny, and he has like this real internal breakdown, and he decides that he's going to leave the island based on what has happened, just because he was like, oh, it's all my fault. And I remember thinking it's so interesting that 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 was meant to bring them life ended up bringing them harm. And I think that's so true, as I was thinking about ambition. Without the refining fire of the Holy Spirit, the very thing that was meant to bring us life our dreams and our ambitions end up bringing us harm unless we put them in the context of God's kingdom and God's economy. When our ambitions, when our dreams, when those things that God intended for good, when we let the world corrupt those and we start placing our value on whether or not we get seen, whether or not we get promoted, then those things that were meant to bring life can bring death. So what do we do? How do we keep our ambitions safe? How do we keep them pure? How do we keep them godly? And that's where it comes to this word humility. It's stunning. In 1 Peter, he tells us to clothe ourselves in humility. Isn't that a beautiful picture? To clothe ourselves in humility. But what is humility? Well, Tim Keller, I'm just going to put a quote up on the screen. Tim Keller, a a writer and a pastor of a church from the States, puts it really well. He says, the Christian gospel is this. I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself, nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. It's a great quote. Do you know, in Numbers, uh, at the beginning of the Old Testament, it says that Moses was a humble man. In fact, he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. It's a really nice thing for someone to write about you. But have you any idea who wrote Numbers? (laughs) Moses. Yeah, Moses wrote that about himself, potentially. (laughs) And that's, that's okay, because when you tie into what Tim Keller is telling us, Humility isn't actually about thinking of yourself less. That's a kind of a false humility. It's also not thinking about yourself more than you should. Humility is this. It's thinking of yourself less. Or to say it another way, true, complete humility is a total other person-centeredness. Would, uh, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to John 13, verse 3? This is, um, this is a passage of Scripture, and I want you to try and get the implications of what the writer John here is trying to say to us. So reading from verse 3 of John 13. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, therefore, because of that, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay. I find this verse staggering. What is John trying to say? John starts his passage of scripture by saying that Jesus knew that all things had been put under his feet, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what's John saying? What I'm about to write, remember that this, in this context, Jesus knows that he is the son of God. And that revelation, that awareness of God, leads him to one course of action. He stands up from the seat of honor. He gets down on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet. Right? It's a stunning part of scripture. John's really trying to remind us that when we find ourselves in positions of influence... What that looked like for Jesus was that he stood up and he washed his disciples' feet. That's where that revelation, everything that we read in Colossians this morning, you know, Jesus holds the church, he holds the whole universe together. But Philippians 2, he emptied himself. He humbled himself and he became a servant because that's the way of the kingdom. So say you have an ambition, and I hope you do, some, you know, some dream, some calling, some prophetic word over your life that you're going to you know, write a book or you're going to change the school that you work in or you're going to pray for people on the street or you're going to lead worship, whatever your dream looks like. And the truth is, is that we know that Jesus created you, which means that he believes in you more than you believe in yourself, which means the dream that he gives you is going to be bigger than you think you can do. Because he believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And so we grapple with these questions and we try to work out, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to hold that? Hold that awareness, hold that dream, hold that ambition. What does Monday morning look like? Well, Jesus' response to the truth of who he was was that he got up from the table, he picked up a towel, and he washed the dust and the blood and the feces off of his 12 disciples' feet. And so our response to the truth of who we are, the ambitions that we carry, the calling that we have, the prophetic words over our life, has got to be the same. If you want to be a leader in the kingdom of God, if you want to do great things, then pick up a towel and find a group of people to serve. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but three different books in the Bible say the same thing about humility. It turns up in Proverbs, James, and 1 Peter. It says, God resists the proud, but gives grace and exalts the humble. And I was reading that and I was, I was, as I was preparing this talk, and I, had, I think it was God. I was thinking about it, and I was like, I've always read everyone else as the proud, you know, God resists the proud, 
But then I felt like God saying, Adam, sometimes you're the proud. And I'm like, wow, that's a big obstacle to get around. God resists the proud. And so for my own life, I need to be aware that sometimes it isn't the devil that's standing in my path. It's God. Right? God resists the proud. But what's the flip side of that? He gives grace and he exalts the humble. That's beautiful. And so because of that, your greatest moments of humility are the moments of greatest investment into your future. Your moments of greatest humility are your moments of greatest investment into your future. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This isn't like a one-time thing. This is our journey. This is our life journey. We humble ourselves and God exalts us. And in this new position, we humble ourselves again and God exalts us. And it goes on and on. And the only danger we have is when we come to a place where we feel like we've outgrown humility. Now our position of leadership is so important. Our dream is so big. Actually, what we need is lots of people to serve us. No, that's not what the Bible says. It says you humble yourself. Jesus, knowing that he was from God, going back to God, that everything had been put under his feet, he got up. Imagine that. The awareness that the whole salvation plan of the universe hangs on what you're going to do with the three years of life. And he gets up from the table and he washes the disciples' feet. And so maybe... So we're trying to work out like a sort of, I'm a scientist, so I like litmus tests, you know, like little things that check. Maybe a litmus test for your ambition, your calling, your prophetic word is, who does it serve? And whose feet does it wash? Like, who does it serve? And actually, the, the beautiful thing is that humility is birthed in knowing that we're loved. Because... Self-promotion is so often about trying to validate ourselves, right? We live in the world. We need to not be naive about that. We live in a world where they constantly are communicating that your value, your worth, who you are, how well you've done with life is how many people can look at you and think, wow. But that's not the kingdom. Actually, once we know that we're loved far beyond, so infinitely more than what we ever achieve, Suddenly we're set free of self-promotion. Suddenly we're set free of striving. We're free to pursue big dreams, knowing that it's actually humility is birthed out of the fact that we are loved and God is looking after us. The Bible is full of people who changed the course of nations. They subverted empires and defeated evil. Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Joseph, Esther, David, Samuel. It is not a list of people who played it safe. But if you notice, their life never went A, B, C. Most of the time, it jumped around. It was sort of like A, G, X, back to A. Their life never had this clear path. It always moved all over the place. Take Joseph, for example. He's given this dream of leading. But we know that his brothers already hated him because his dad showed such intense favoritism. And this bred an arrogance in Joseph that he insisted in telling them all about numerous dreams that he had, that he was gonna, they were going to bow down to him. He had no idea how to handle what God had given him. And so for his journey, it was the prison before the palace that was the process that prepared him. 
It was the prison before the palace that was the process that prepared him. You know, if I'm honest, I spend quite a lot of the time worrying that God doesn't really have enough kingdom to go around. You know? I kind of, I think that if I'm honest, God acts on like a first come, first serve kind of basis. If I can hit all the targets, if I can hear his voice clearly, if I can step out in confidence, if I can read the right books and upskill enough that maybe he'll use me, what if there's not enough kingdom to go around? But then we hear 3,000 refugees a day. Right, there is plenty to do for everyone. And so the question is never, how much of the kingdom did God have to offer? The question is never, how much of the kingdom does God have to offer? But how much is my character able to hold? This whole series has been about ambition. And God isn't scared of big dreams. You know, I like the the 24-7 promo video for The Gathering where Pete talks. And he says, you know there must be more than this. You know, you're called to make a change. Like, I love that. And that's what the gathering is going to be about. It's going to be about making a change using God's upside-down kingdom. And God isn't scared of those big dreams. He's not scared of ambition, which is why we're doing a series called Ambition. But he also is not a puppet master. He listens to the cry of your heart. And if he says that you want to do... If you say that you want to do something, then he says, great, there's plenty to do. Let's get to work. And then he begins a process that refines your character, that you might be able to stand in that dream that he has placed before you. And the nice thing is, it's not just an ABC. For me, it's a little bit like GPS. You ever done that thing with GPS where there's like a path and then you go this way and it's like recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Right, that's what God is like. He's got plenty of ways to get you to where he wants to go. It's not like a boom, 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 boom. But he is committed to a process that prepares you for the palace. Right, that's what God is about. Did you know I found out, it's the science thing again, a dam, however wide a dam is, it has to be at least that deep to be able to hold back the water. So say a dam is a mile wide. It has to be dug a mile deep into the ground. That's, so just, just picture that. Picture trying to dig a mile deep into a dam, into the ground to prepare a dam. And to me, that so often is like what you see is such a small proportion of actually what is there. God will only expand your influence to the level that your character can handle. And developing God-like character is like digging. It's hard work because it is so different to the values of the world that we live in. You know, the Bible says, consider it joy when you encounter trials, because trials prepare your character. Consider it joy. I mean, when's the last time you rejoiced that life became really hard? When's the last time you said, thank you, Jesus, that this day was so difficult because I know that you're preparing me for that dream that you placed in my heart? Right, that's the kingdom. He's digging because he knows that however wide you're going to be, you have to be that deep. C.S. Lewis said, the, um, the author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a great apologist of the last kind of recent times, said, hardships often prepare ordinary people for, for an extraordinary destiny. Hardships often prepare ordinary people 
for an extraordinary destiny. It's a great quote. In um, just after that part in John 13, we find John 15. And a few years ago, here at Emmaus, we did a whole series looking at John 15, and that's the part where Jesus talks about being the vine dresser. You know, and he, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in that part, everyone's getting pruned. It says that 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 doesn't bear fruit, he prunes, and that that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. So what's getting pruned? Everything. Everything's getting pruned, right? That's what Jesus is committed to. Everything is getting pruned. And so my challenge to myself, maybe my challenge to you today is, am I welcoming that pruning? Am I kind of submitting to the shears, you know? Is my vision for my life so big and my heart to serve people so great that my prayer becomes, God, would you help me to be a man of humility? Would you help me to be a man of character that I might be able to walk the path set before me? Lord, would you prune me because I know that I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. I know my character is not going to hold this up. Thank you, God, that you're committed to pruning me. Um... Many of you will know the story of Henry Nouwen. A kind of, um, he's a priest and a professor, a theologian, really famous author. Well, he spent 20 years of his life lecturing at Notre Dame, at Yale, at Harvard. But he says that after doing that for 20 years, lecturing at some of the biggest universities in the world, he felt lost. And it was at that point he came into contact with a man called Jean Varnier. And Jean uh, Varnier invited him to come and work at a place called L'Arche. Is that right? I always pronounce that wrong. L'Arche. L'Arche. Um, and L'Arche was a place that Jean Varnier had set up where he worked um, living and serving mentally and physically handicapped people. And John felt this kind of cry in Henry's heart that he wasn't fulfilled. And he said, why won't you, you just come? come to L'Arche. And so Henry went there, and he enjoyed it so much. He felt so fulfilled serving in hiddenness at L'Arche that he decided to stay there, and he lived there, and he worked. And Henry Nowen has gone on to write some of the most exceptional books. He's a really famous author, but I don't think he knew that when he moved. What he found was that he experienced joy and privilege of hidden service, and it gave him something that all of the platform and Yale and Harvard never had. It's because the way up in the kingdom is always the way down. Uh, Richard Foster, another author, says, Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms those desires like serving in hiddenness. Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms those desires like serving in hiddenness. And so what does this look like? I mean, what does it look like for us as a family, as a church together? How do we get really practical with this? Well, I just want to show you three... Um, Three, well, one verse in three different translations because I really like this. And to me, this is what humility looks like in action. This is what the day-to-day -day kind of stuff. And this is in Romans 12, 
in the NIV, it says, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. In the ESV, it says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Maybe my favorite is in the message. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Practice playing second fiddle. This is such a challenging verse because what Paul is talking about is getting to a place where I so clothe myself in humility that it makes me so other people-centered that I truly celebrate when you get the promotion that I deserved, when I see you doing better, when I can serve in hiddenness that it might serve you and bless you and see you prosper and see you do well. I practice. I make it my business to play second fiddle. I get up from the seat of honor. I get a towel and a wash basin and I wash your feet. I just want to show you a really short um, clip which to me kind of brings this all home. Johnny has to win and to be sure of taking the title. And right now he seems to have lost control of his legs. And this is worrying. Oh, and he's starting to slow. And there is a little way to go. There's half a K to go. And Johnny is running out of time and is losing... He's losing his sense of direction. This is worrying. Oh, goodness me. This is a horrible sight. Jonathan Brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course. And Alistair's stopped to help him along. And Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh, my God, I cannot believe what we are seeing here, Matt. Is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownlee brothers arm in arm, but it's not by way of celebration. Henry Schumann's celebrating. He's going to win this race in Cozumel out of nowhere. But we have to be concerned about the health of Jonathan Brownlee. And they're not even on the final stretch yet. Schumann wins in Cozumel. The brothers are coming home arm in arm to finish in second and third. But Johnny can hardly stand. And Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home, pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me, what an incredible conclusion here in Cozumel. I've never seen anything like that anywhere in world sports. Worrying scenes all round. Isn't that stunning? The, um, the Brownlee brothers, two famous athletes. I don't know if you noticed, but as he comes around the corner, as Alistair comes around the corner, he doesn't stop and wonder. You know, he, there isn't a moment when he thinks, oh, what do I do? It's just this sort of like, 
this reflex of love is so great that he just instantly grabs him and he runs with him and he takes him by the arm and he pushes him over the finish line first. I don't know if you caught it, but the commentator has this great line. She says, is he allowed to do this? Is this against the rules? And in a dog-eat-dog world, every man for himself, your life is the sum of the victories you win and the times that you come first. Then no, this is totally against the rules. It subverts and it breaks and it confounds the world. Right? It is totally against the the rules. But in a community of brotherly, brotherly love, with people who don't just practice, but prioritize and celebrate playing second fiddle, then this reflex is what life looks like. This reflex of life. We don't just carry them to the finish line. But when we get there, we push them over ahead of us. So my challenge to me is, will the record books of the earth talk about all the races I won? Or will the scrolls of heaven talk about all the times I pushed someone over the line ahead of me? Right? Will the books of the earth say all talk about all the times that I won the, won the race? Or will the scrolls of heaven record all the times that I pushed someone ahead of me? The principles of the gospel were so simple. Resurrection power sits on the other side of death. If you're willing to die to pride and fame, platform, promotion, it's amazing what will be reborn in and through your life. Would we not be a people who just settle for coming first? Would we take up that invitation of the gospel to have a character so big, so great, an ambition so big to change the world that we stand up from the table, we get water, we pick up a towel, and we find a group of people to wash their feet? Would you, would you join me in praying? Lord, we thank you for the high call of the kingdom. Lord Jesus, thank you that your gospel is upside down. Thank you that it confounds the wise. Lord, thank you that it looks so different. And so, Lord Jesus, for myself, this church family, Lord, would you help us to be a people who practice playing second fiddle? Lord, we love you. Lord, We thank you for the resurrection power that sits as we're willing to die to ourselves. So we ask that you'd help us. Would you teach us? Would you give us the confidence to know that we are loved far beyond, far greater than anything that we achieve? Lord, that our security and our identity is safe in you and that sets us free to join you and partner in you, partner with you in serving the world. And we love you, Jesus. Amen. Let's show our appreciation, Adam. That was brilliant. Thank you. So brilliant.